Hello and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. Today we have an awesome guest, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and entrepreneur, Dr. Kerry Sulkowitz. Kerry's what you might call a CEO whisperer. More than 20 years ago, he founded an organizational consulting firm called the Boswell Group, where he'd served as a trusted leadership advisor to some of the world's most well-known and respected corporate executives and boards. Little known fact, the Boswell Group is named after his dog. Can't wait to hear that story. But before we do, I would like to take this time to acknowledge and hear from Sean Amagazi, affectionately known as Dr. Sean around Stern, who has been our associate producer on this episode. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you, Justin and Devna. So happy to be here and really excited for this episode. Dr. Sean, you've worked really hard on this episode. Tell us, how do you know Dr. Solkowitz? Absolutely. Um, working on this episode has been a very special experience for me. I met Kerry during my first year of medical school after learning about the fascinating work that he does at the intersection of business and psychiatry. Over the last three years, I've had the pleasure of getting to know him more, and I consider him to be a good friend and role model. As somebody who wants to be a psychiatrist and entrepreneur, hearing about Kerry's journey has been very inspiring to me. I also admire how he has been able to balance the demands of his career with other meaningful endeavors, such as his involvement with the incredible organization Physicians for Human Rights. I know that our listeners will find this discussion very interesting and insightful. Wow, can't wait. We're certainly in for a treat today. Thank you, Sean. Devna, you ready to get started? Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katches. And I'm Devna Shukla. Today, we have a special guest psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and entrepreneur, Dr. Kerry Sulkowitz. Kerry, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. So in true Stern Chats tradition, we always ask for a brief introduction about yourself. Will you give us your 30-second elevator pitch? Sure. Uh, it may take a little bit of a taller building, though, but um, <laughs> I'm, a, uh, as was mentioned, I'm trained as a physician. I'm a psychiatrist and also trained as a psychoanalyst, but I've been living in the business world for the past uh, nearly 25 years, serving as an advisor to CEOs and boards and management teams of uh, a range of organizations around the world. That is incredible, and I can't wait to dive into all the different aspects of your career. But before we get started, would you mind, uh, this is for our, for our listeners, uh, just describing the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst? Sure. Uh, psychiatry is a specialty of medicine. Uh, and uh, in fact, I did my residency in psychiatry here at NYU Medical Center starting in 1985, and I've been affiliated with NYU ever since. So uh, people go to medical school, and they chose to choose their specialty, and I chose psychiatry. Uh, people who are psychiatrists or psychologists, for that matter, can go on and get specialized training in psychoanalysis, which is a, a deeper form of, of therapy that, uh, in a way of understanding human behavior. So I'm trained both as a first as a psychiatrist and then as a psychoanalyst. And that's a subset. One is a subset of the other. You could look at it as a specialty within psychiatry and psychology, yeah. Where did this all begin? Because you've had such an incredible career going from private practice um, to now obviously being a major force at NYU and working with CEOs and top boards. When did you first realize that you were interested not only in human behavior but also in medicine? It's a long story, uh, but I'll try to give you the shortest version of it. Um, I grew up in Texas, and I was a child of Holocaust survivors, actually, who uh, immigrated from Poland after the Second World War. They were extremely fortunate to 
have survived the war and they wound up in Texas. That's a story that'll be take us too far afield. But <laughs> uh, but I think I grew up with a bit of the my son the Jewish doctor syndrome, and so had this idea that uh, that going to medical school would be a good thing to do. And I was interested in science, but also interested in in literature and the arts and humanities. Um, I uh, I went to Harvard College and then went back to the University of Texas medical branch in Galveston to go to medical school. And it was really then that I thought that uh, that psychiatry was the the branch of medicine, although I liked them all, um, the branch of medicine that I was really drawn to because I was always really interested in understanding what made people tick. And um, and in fact, I had an interest in leadership at an early age, although I wouldn't call it uh, an intellectual interest. It was an entirely emotional one back then when I was a, when I was a little kid and uh, I, was, I was an avid reader. And I always found myself reading biographies of leaders and uh, particularly world leaders, and I had this burning question, which it took me years later of retrospect to understand where it came from, and that was to try to understand how did leaders of countries really get large groups of people to do good things, and especially how do they get them to do bad things? And I think that interest in leadership has, in a sense, been um, uh, become my life's work. Interesting. And I see parallels between the history that your parents and the experience that they went through and kind of your interest in, in what you just said and how leaders get get people to do bad things. Uh, I'm curious, when you think about your parents and your early upbringing, how did their experience and the way that they raised you influence you then and, and how does that carry through to today? Well, it shaped me profoundly. I mean, we're all a product of accumulated life experience. Uh, for me, having parents who were survivors of, uh, of, of a genocide um, cast a long shadow. And, um, you know, I had this both interest in how did, it, how did it happen and why, and in the leaders, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I, I think I developed an early interest in human rights and the idea of how to keep these kinds of things from happening again. Uh, my father used to always joke with me that he said, you know, I, I, unlike him, have the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And then he would kind of add with a twinkle in his eye, but please go to medical school. <laughs> um, uh, and so... Uh, so long as it's a doctor. <laughs> so I, uh, and, and in a sense, I have both, uh, you know, followed his wishes and defied them at the same time because mm-hmm. I, I, I did go to medical school and became a doctor, but I don't think he ever really understood psychiatry. Uh, I think he probably would have uh, wanted me to become a real doctor, like a surgeon or something. <laughs> uh, and I, and then I, he used to tell me not to go into business. But for him, he was a traveling salesman all his life. He was both of my parents were not uh, educated, and um, and so I think for him, meant being a, a traveling salesman. So I don't think he necessarily meant uh, going into the kind of business that uh, that I wound up going into later. You mentioned, you know, that we're all a product of our experiences, our parents, our families, and our upbringing. When you look at leaders, how much of um, what makes a really strong leader comes from their genetics, the way that they were built and born and raised versus things that they've learned over time? It's a really important question. You know, if you peruse the um, the business or leadership section of Barnes & Noble, you'll find probably a new book a day uh, on leadership, usually, you know, five easy steps to being a great leader. <laughs> um, and... Um, but I'm, I'm convinced that while some of those books have some useful pearls of wisdom in it, they don't really make one a great leader. And frankly, one doesn't become a, a great leader by going to a great business school like Stern either, uh, even though I think there have, many, have been many great leaders who have emerged uh, from it. I think that um, I think the best leaders, the, the ones who can really inspire the most followership, which is really one of the most basic and fundamental definitions of leadership, um, acquired those leadership traits through the crucible of early life experience. 
genetics and biology and environment uh, play a, an important role in all of that. One of the unspoken um, truths that I've found about some of the most inspiring leaders that I have either had the opportunity to serve as an advisor to or just to watch at a greater distance is that some of them have, um, have had some early life trauma and, um, and, and the role of trauma broadly defined, uh, whether that's uh, the, the loss of a parent early on or having a parent with an emotional illness, um, uh, parental divorce, those kinds of shaping experiences early on. Uh, in most cases, it causes all kinds of emotional vulnerabilities, and it does in leaders too. And I think there's a small subset, though, of people who have those experiences who go on and uh, respond in a highly adaptive way by becoming leaders. Some of the some of the best leaders I know have, in a sense, had to step into leadership-like roles in their families when they were children. They have become precocious leaders of of adults mm-hmm. when they were still children. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You you mentioned the word vulnerabilities, and I'm curious what you you know how you view being vulnerable in the context of also being a leader. Because I think some people get this idea that leadership is about being like right all the time and strong all the time. And and I'm curious what your what your thoughts on on being vulnerable and being real. Yeah, that's a myth that leaders have to be right all the time and strong all the time. In fact, that's almost a, a caricature of leadership. Um, one of the uh, one of the terms that I've written a bit about uh, is what I would describe as one of the worst and most dangerous traits in leaders, which is that of I've called it pathological certainty. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> idea that you know leaders are right all the time and yeah. <clears throat> they can never express any any doubt or apologize for a mistake. We're all human. So I think vulnerability is just part of being human, and I think that uh, the the best leaders t- are emotionally authentic, and part of that is uh, is acknowledging their vulnerability. Um, uh, hopefully, they're right more often than wrong. If you know, if, if if that's not the case, then there's a that's a different kind of problem. But but the best leaders are human and don't try to hide behind some kind of aura of invincibility or infallibility. Mm-hmm. And sorry, Devin. No, go go go. And I, w- I wanted to introduce one other uh, one other angle to this this conversation about vulnerability, and that is the uh, the difference in gender between men and women, and how you think uh, leadership broadly defined for each, both men and women, um, can be viewed through the lens of vulnerability. Said differently, is it okay for men and women to both be vulnerable, or how are they perceived if they do express vulnerability as a leader? Uh, it's a complicated question and a complicated answer. I think that, that, that my ideas on leadership apply to men and women. Um, and I think that, that those leaders, men or women, who are uh, real human beings, who, who are feeling, who are empathetic, um, and who can express vulnerability are the most effective leaders. I think society has made it, unfortunately, more difficult for women uh, to show vulnerability. Uh, for other reasons, it's made it difficult for men to do that because of some of our really misguided ideas about masculinity. Mm-hmm. But I think um, in some ways, uh, unfortunately, women have had to adapt to a, a male-dominated culture by also not showing vulnerability, even though women may be more predisposed to naturally express that that kind of vulnerability in their emotional sides. But some of the best leaders that I have worked with are women and, um, and feel comfortable in their own skin, which I think is really a critical uh, trait for whether you're male or female in a leadership role. I mean, tactically, is there like real advice that you can give to women or underrepresented minorities who 
you know, have the skill set, have the credentials to be these great leaders, whether formally or informally, but then are still sort of um, knocking against like the glass ceiling in all different respects and how to be successful. I'm always reluctant to give generic advice just because um, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it tends to have the, the, the limitations of anything that's generic. Um, but I think I think women leaders and, and future leaders today are actually living in a better time in some ways uh, than they have in the past. Uh, certainly, there's so much focus on on gender equity and inclusiveness these days uh, that the climate is better. That's not to say that the the fight is over. It's far from it. Um, but you know, I would say that you know, keep knocking against the the glass ceiling and break it. Um, there's there's increasing precedent for for being able to do that successfully. And so when we think about the future leaders, um, and we'll talk about the, the CEOs and, and uh, the, the leaders that you advise now, but in the context of business school, in the context of us, you know, Devin and I going out into the world with our classmates and, and you know, years down, down the road becoming leaders uh, and, and C-suite executives in our own right, what advice would you give to us or, or what guidance would you give to us about not only becoming good leaders but also uh, supporting others, uh, particularly women and underrepresented minorities, as as we all kind of climb through the corporate ladder. Well, I would I would first quibble with just one piece of your question, which is that I don't think you necessarily have to wait years and years to do that. <laughs> um, I, I it, it starts now, um, and I'm serious about that. I think that um, one one of the things that I'm encouraged about is that there's less of a of a focus these days on needing to work your way up the ladder. I'm not suggesting that there isn't some value to experience. There is, but uh, but I, I think it's never too early to to demonstrate uh, qualities of leadership. And I, I, so I, I wouldn't. I, I would be. I'm I'm in favor of being impatient, um, um, and not necessarily you know waiting till it happens. Um, I, I'm not sure where where else what else to say about your question. I think that it's it's a time to to be bold, to be curious. I think uh, for, for me, one of the most important traits of, of young leaders, and it's where, where people who are young, I think, have a, have a distinct advantage, is, uh, is to be curious about the world and just don't, don't, don't stop asking questions. Um, to me, uh, that is so important, not only for the obvious reasons that it's a way of learning, um, but, uh, but curiosity is really the opposite of arrogance, because uh, if you're arrogant, you kind of know all the answers and... Uh, Know, who, who has anything to teach you, whereas curiosity is not only uh, a position of being open-minded, but there's something inherently humble about it uh, because it's acknowledging that you don't have all the answers. And so I think follow, you know, follow your curiosity and your passions, and it'll probably serve you well, even if, even if there's some blind alleys and, and missteps along the way, that's <laughs> fine too. I know Justin and I want to break down the characteristics of successful leaders and break down even that phrase, but I sort of want to start with one question about how important are titles for C-suiteers and leaders? Are there people out there who um, don't need that title and don't have that like psychological craving for, I have to be VP, I have to be MD, I have to be all these things to be a leader? Um, but what does the role of the actual title itself play in a leader? Does it embolden them? Does it, does it hinder them? Um, does it, or does it create more expectations for them? The way I look at it is um, a title and gives you gives you the opportunity to be a leader, and um, but having a title like CEO, which people uh, naturally kind of instinctively associate with a leadership role, it is only if you inhabit it properly. Um, but the title alone doesn't guarantee anything. 
there's the difference between formal authority and moral authority, and that's a distinction that I like to make. Formal authority is CEO or VP or you know whatever your title uh, allows you to do. Moral authority is something that is earned. It's not based on your title at all, and it's based on how you conduct yourself. And uh, you know, conducting yourself with 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 vision, with with compassion, uh, with intelligence, um, and that is something that is earned, and it's ultimately what. Um, what really makes the world go around. I think that now that's a powerful combination, though, to be able to have moral authority as well as positional authority, i.e. a title. And uh, that can really change the world. And so CEOs, and it's a rare subset, frankly, it's not most of them in, in my experience, but there are a lot of CEOs still out there who, who, who demonstrate what I refer to as moral authority um, and who are the most effective leaders that I know. So you mentioned being passionate and being compassionate. I'm curious what, you know, you've worked with a lot of incredibly successful leaders, helping them along their journeys. What are some of the kind of common characteristics that you have seen from from your clients? I should point out that, that while I have had the, uh, the privilege of working with a lot of leaders over the years, um, there's a certain self-selection that goes on in terms of the kinds of CEOs who hire me. Um, the egregiously narcissistic kinds of CEOs, they're not calling me. It tends to be the more self-aware, I would say, the more enlightened leaders who have a modicum of humility and uh, recognize that it's helpful to have somebody to talk to, uh, simply by virtue of the some of the inherent qualities of the role of being at the top of an organization, and that is that it's inherently isolating and uh, and being in a position at the top of an organization inhibits the upward flow of information to them. And so the idea of having somebody who, you know, is not part of the organizational structure, who's outside of the company altogether to talk to is very helpful to deal with the loneliness, to to deal with uh, some of the ambiguous, complicated problems that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And frankly, uh, I think bringing my, my being able to bring a psychological perspective to bear uh, is also helpful to help the the leaders mm. think more psychologically about their roles. It's interesting that you mention loneliness in leaders because I think, you know, isolation and disengagement are are two incredibly difficult things to deal with as people. And is loneliness kind of common across people who who run these very large organizations? And then how do you, as an advisor, uh, help them cope with that and help them break through it? It's very common. Uh, in fact, the ones I would say it's universal, and, and the ones who don't acknowledge it, I would be concerned about. Um, it's uh, it's a fact that by virtue of having the CEO title, um, th- that's a little bit intimidating. Every, you're everybody's boss, and there's always a concern about what people think of you, and, and how and, and they're, they're concerned about being judged, uh, or even worse. So. Uh, that that brings about this situation of some some isolation. And how do you help them? Well, for one thing, I, I for, in, a, in several ways. One is I give them somebody to talk to, as I mm-hmm. said a moment ago. Um, but I think the other thing that I do is I talk to them about some of the consequences of that isolation. You know, it's it's sort of funny. Sometimes CEOs will say to me, "You know, I'm I'm the same guy there or, or gal. I'm, I'm the same person that I was uh, two years ago before I was the CEO or before I founded this company." Uh, but everything has changed. And I say, well, you know, yes, you're the same person, but you're not. You're the same human being, you know, two years later. But the, the role that you occupy um, changes the way people relate to you in a profound way. And they say, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. And so I, 
I have an open door policy. And I always chuckle about that a little bit too, which because, you know, having an open door policy is good. It's better than having a closed door policy, I guess. Um, but it's too passive because they're still the CEO. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, literally and figuratively walk by and see the door open. And that's, that's a good thing. But that doesn't necessarily actively enough invite people to, to walk through it, so to speak. And so uh, one of the things that I counsel CEOs about is how to mitigate the inhibiting effect of their authority on everybody around them. And that is, you know, to solicit input very actively, not just to wait for it to come, uh, to check it, to, to make sure that it's, that, that it's right, to, to get different data points about it. And importantly, uh, to, uh, to invite bad news. The good news is easy. Everybody, you know, it's, it's much easier to tell a CEO, oh, I think you're doing a great job, or, you know, here's some exciting thing that just happened in my department. But it's, it's harder to bring bad news to a CEO. And I think CEOs have to be so careful to not only be interested in it, and any CEO worth their salt is, but to make sure that there's nothing that can be construed as a punitive response to bad news, especially if it, if it involves something that the CEO uh, himself has, him or herself has done, uh, because that has a chilling effect on future opportunities to get information that's so mm. vital. Do you find that this isolation also follows them outside of the office? And I'm thinking about the people that we know or the friends that we have. Everyone knows whose dad is the CEO. Or I can only imagine if you're, you know, you know, Barack and Michelle Obama's daughters or Bill and Melinda Gates' kids, that this title that your family has carries on with you socially, too. Do you find that the most successful leaders have a robust sort of social um, network and sort of deep connections outside the office, too? CEOs do need to have that. They need to have friends partners in life and otherwise to uh, to talk to. But I think your point is right that uh, I, I guess I would say it in a somewhat different way, which is that if you're a leader, you're never off duty. Mm-hmm. You know, you're. it's not just that you put on the CEO hat when you walk in the building and then you can take it off when you, you know, go out for a beer later. You're always the leader um, and you're always under the scrutiny that goes with it. I sometimes say that CEOs are under the electron microscope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that not to make them paranoid, not to make them feel like they then have to, you know, constrain their behavior or kind of, you know, curl up in a corner somewhere. I'm clearly, I'm not suggesting that uh, because that the same <laughs> scrutiny um, that can uh, make them have double standards if they don't behave according to, to, the, to their values in every aspect of their life, th- that same scrutiny can also be a force for good because um, people pay so much attention to what CEOs do that it can be an opportunity for leaders to model behavior that in turn does trickle down through the organization and create the culture. That's a whole other topic to talk about is, <laughs> is culture. But CEOs, in my view, have the greatest impact on culture of anybody inside the organization. It's kind of like parents on the culture of a home. Absolutely. I'm curious to hear if there are CEOs that you admire, whether they're well-known or people that you've studied and read about or met who um, you feel like really do model true leadership, true empathy, true vulnerability, true vulnerability in all different ways. Oh, there are a lot of great CEOs out there who I admire, some of whom I, I know personally and some of whom, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I admire from a distance. Um, I just spoke last week with Hamdi Ulakaya, the founder and CEO of Chobani, the yogurt company, and, and he, uh, he gave a talk at TED. I was at TED last week, and he is, uh, he's somebody who I, who I admire a great deal in terms of his humble leadership and his putting employees first and creating a, a, a highly inclusive, creative environment. Uh, 
Another leader who I've gotten to know over the years is Toby Cosgrove, who recently retired as the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic and really built it into the the colossus that it is today. And, um, you know, Toby has spoken a lot about the role of empathy in, in healthcare organizations, which you might think would be second nature uh, in, in, a, in a place that's designed to take care of sick people. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but I think he, he raised that to a, to a new level. So I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and talk about the business that you started, uh, the Boswell Group. Can you just give us a brief overview of, of what that business is and, and how it was getting off the ground? Sure. I love to talk about the Boswell Group. Um, I was in, uh, I have to take you back a few years, um, after I finished my, my residency in psychiatry at NYU in Bellevue, uh, back in eight, 1989, I, uh, I started a private practice in psychiatry on the Upper East Side of New York, and I thought that that was how I was going to be spending the rest of my career, and it's a perfectly respectable way to, to have a career in, in, in medicine. Um, but, but to be really candid, I was, um, I, I was uh, frustrated and unhappy by some aspects of it after having been in full-time private practice for five or six years. I, I liked and still like the idea of helping people. I liked some of the intellectual underpinnings of it. But I, um, it, it dawned on me after a while that I was a little too restless uh, to be sitting in an office, comfortable as it was on the Upper East Side all day, seeing one patient after another. And I uh, realized that my temperament was probably not perfectly suited to, to that kind of life. I loved getting out mm. of my office. And frankly, some of the most fun I had every week was when I would come down to NYU Medical Center and teach residents. And um, so, uh, so I was a little, I didn't quite know what to do with that. I also had this interest in leadership that I mentioned earlier that really went back to childhood. Um, and then a couple of lucky accidents uh, happened to me. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I had this brilliant plan to, to start a consulting business, but that would not be true. Um, I was uh, at a cocktail party and met a guy who was the founder and CEO of an internet startup in the early days of the internet. This was in 1995. And, um, you know, one of the... Uh, occupational hazards of being a psychiatrist at cocktail parties is that people have a couple of glasses of wine and they find out that you're a shrink and then they unburden themselves. <laughs> uh, I'm imagining uh, Jeff Bezos uh, just unloading all of these things on you. Well, it's, you know, and I, I've always enjoyed that aspect of being a psychiatrist because I, you know, I like talking to people and I like hearing stories. And, and this guy who, who's become a dear, dear friend, um, but I had just met him that evening, told me about how he was the CEO of a startup um, and he and a couple of friends from a big company had left together and started this startup, but he had become the CEO, which meant that they hadn't. And um, that had changed the dynamics of their friendship. That was one of the things that he was struggling with. The second was that they'd gotten some seed funding from a Japanese company, and there were some cultural tensions that they were trying to to navigate. And actually, the third the third thing that he talked about it probably after the second glass of wine was that um, – even though he had the CEO title, he didn't necessarily know how to be a CEO, how to be a leader. It gets back to the question about uh, positional authority versus versus moral authority. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I thought it was a, just a nice guy to talk to at a party. And after a while, he said, um, so, Carrie, uh, I found this, uh, you know, really, really helpful talking to you. When do you think you'd be able to start uh, advising me and my company? And... Um, I'll, I'll have to edit this a little bit for uh, the purpose of this podcast. But he basically said something like... Uh, 
uh, you know, when would you be able to start consulting with me? And I, I, I said something like, uh, I think you're out of your uh, mind. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I said, you obviously need help, but you should probably go hire somebody who, you know, knows, knows how to do that for a living. Uh, um, and he, what was interesting was that he said, you know, the fact that you said that to me just now makes me want to hire you even more. I said, why? Because I, I just told you I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, I found it very helpful to talk to you, but the fact that you can speak so bluntly and you can admit that you don't know what you're doing, that's what I need. And that was really the beginning of what turned out to be my career in, in business because he was kind enough to uh, – to, to hire me. Actually, the funny part is he asked me how much, how much I would charge for this kind of project. And I said, look, I don't have the slightest idea. I said, why don't you supply the sandwiches and we'll call it a deal. Uh, since we were <laughs> I thought you were going to say lunch. you can't afford me. That's yeah. my favorite <laughs> well, answer. He, he did tell me. ask, you can't yeah. afford me. <laughs> he, he, it's funny because he, uh, he said to me uh, after I quoted him sandwiches as my fee, um, he said, "Look, you're obviously a terrible business person, but, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but if you uh, if, if this works out, we can renegotiate, which we eventually did." And um, so that was how I started. And I, I thought it was going to be a hobby, really, on the side of my my private practice. Mm-hmm. And he was nice enough to refer me to a couple of other entrepreneurs, and uh, uh, and then I had worked with a family business as well. Uh, and then I did what any uh, you know, what any self-respecting academic does, which is after you see something a few times, you declare yourself an expert and write a paper. So I I wrote a paper called uh, Psychoanalysis and the New Economy, which was really, um, I I sometimes, I've written a fair amount over the years, and I I sometimes write more to help me understand what I'm seeing Mm. than uh, than anything else. And and this paper, uh, I gave it at a conference, and there was a reporter from the New York Times who was there and who I'm forever grateful to, um, she came up to me afterwards, and I think she said something about how she wasn't going to cover my paper because it was too boring and academic, but could she call me sometime? And she did, and uh, wound up doing a profile a while later with the, uh, the headline, Executives Line Up for Couch Treatment. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, if you ever believe in the power of the press to launch a career, um, it, was, it was unbelievable. And, um, and so I found myself uh, fairly early on, this was around 2000, or uh, 99, um, with, um, with the largely undeserved reputation at the time as knowing something about the psychology of CEOs. I'd seen, you know, three or four of them. Um, but that really gave me the idea to start the Boswell Group. Um, and the Boswell Group was um, initially me and my dog, Boswell. Um, uh-huh. uh, yeah, uh, truth be told, he was my first partner, uh, great partner. Um, Loyal. Very loyal and didn't have to do much, just took him for walks and fed him and that sort of thing. But um, I called it the Boswell Group uh, partly because I love my dog and partly because my, you know, my first name, Carrie, people don't know if I'm a boy or a girl, and Selkowitz is kind of hard to spell and pronounce. I really wasn't taking it all that seriously when I started. And, um, but then over time, um, after a couple of years, and I was getting referrals to work with CEOs of startups and real estate businesses, mainly New York businesses in the early years, um, uh, I asked a, a few of my psychoanalytic colleagues, uh, three of them who I'd gotten to know, uh, one from San Francisco and one from Boston and one from New York, to, to join me in this thing called the Boswell Group, which we were really kind of inventing as it went along. And, um, and then it's evolved over time. There are now 15 colleagues in the group, in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and San Francisco, um, all with a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic perspective, some psychiatrists, some psychologists, a couple of MBAs. Uh, but even the MBAs have some 
uh, clinical exposure. And uh, essentially, it's a, it's a consortium of independent practitioners that operate under the umbrella of the Boswell Group. Each person has a, a relatively autonomous practice serving as uh, advisors to CEOs and management teams and boards. Um, and it's the, the, the scale has evolved considerably over the years. We've been incredibly lucky. Uh, my own practice tends to be working with CEOs of very large, some of the largest companies in the world. Um, but I also have a small portfolio of startups that I've uh, stayed involved with, and I've taken some equity in some startups and mm. get to work with the Good founders. I'm curious, though, like respectfully, if, you know, saying that it's a consultancy or, you know, operating on this like business umbrella, does it destigmatize or further stigmatize the role of sort of therapy or professional care like something like yourself provides? Because I'm curious if some of these people who come and call you, it sounds like they're really dealing with personal issues, loneliness, isolation, perhaps in, other, in cases depression, other real mental health issues. And I'm curious about how much they they really need, you know, therapy, which they're getting from you, but also maybe feel better about it because you're they're able to say, oh, like my consultant is here or I use this group. It's not therapy. It's something different. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question you're asking. And I, I would say that it isn't therapy. Um, that's not to say that my being a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst doesn't inform the way I understand the world and what I'm doing with them. But I think there are a couple of important distinctions, Ed, and I think it's, it's important to lay those out. One is that um, the client is actually never the individual in my work as a consultant. The client is always the organization. Uh, the focus is, is primarily on the CEO, but it's always with access to the senior team and the board. So it's a, these are immersive engagements that typically go on for the duration of the tenure of the CEO. And uh, so I've got some clients that I've worked with for more than 15 years at this point. Um, so, so it really isn't uh, therapy. It's about helping the leaders and the teams function better. Uh, there's also an interesting focus on, on governance as well when I work with boards. Um, I, I think that uh, to your question about destigmatization, though, I think that it, uh, there's something I'd like to say about that because I've, I've given that a lot of thought over the years. I would give a great deal of credit to the, the burgeoning and the evolution of the executive coaching movement or phenomenon, I'm not sure how best to describe it, that has in some ways coincided with the period of time that I've been in business, roughly the last 20 years or so. The idea of having a coach or a confidant is, it's not a new idea. It probably goes back to the dawn of time in some way that people have always needed somebody to talk to and that leaders in particular, because of this isolation, have needed somebody to talk to. And I think that uh, e even in the mid-90s when I was getting started, um, coaching was becoming more popular, but it was still somewhat relegated to remedial coaching that executives who were in trouble in some ways uh, and who had failed to respond to feedback from their superiors or what have you would be assigned an executive coach for some period of time, and if they didn't get their act together, they got fired. Um, coaching is very different these days. And while I never call myself a coach, and I can explain why in a moment, uh, I think it has done a lot of good to destigmatize this idea of having somebody to talk to even if it's not therapy. And I think therapy in our popular culture has also become increasingly destigmatized over time. And I think that's a, a very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I see a therapist, uh, I think as does Devna. Yep, I do too. Um, and it's incredibly helpful, honestly, just to keep having the conversation. Uh, one thing I want to, I want to ask you about is being a, a doctor, um, working in the business world and going from advising leaders to being a leader of your own company? And if you could talk about the dynamics between those. 
Sure. Um, being a doctor is an important part of my identity in many ways, which we can, which we can talk about. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Early in my career, I did some work at a large pharmaceutical company years and years ago. And the focus of that project was on helping doctors who were leaving either uh, academic uh, medical settings or private practice and going into business work, you know, leading product teams at a big pharmaceutical company. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think doctors can make great leaders, um, although there are some, uh, of course, not all doctors are the same, but there are some personality traits, at least uh, historically, traditionally about doctors that, you know, doctors have a reputation for, at least in the past, um, for being a little arrogant and have always seen themselves at the top of a team as opposed to being part of a team. Mm -hmm. uh, so some, sometimes doctors need a little bit of attitude adjustment uh, about that. But I think the demographics of medical school has changed so dramatically over the years since I was in medical school, uh, you know, in the early 80s, uh, and, and changed in a very good way. So I think that doctors are more humane, less arrogant in my, to the extent that one can generalize about that. Um, but uh, in terms of being a, a leader of my own group, that's been an education for me, too. Um, uh, not all these things come naturally. Mm -hmm. I, I remember um, in the early days of the Basel group, uh, I think we had about six or seven people in the group. And I, 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 at the risk of protecting some of my colleagues, I won't name any names here. But <laughs> um, I, we, we have retreats uh, three times a year where the, all the members of the Basel group get together and spend a whole day you know, talking about our, our work and talking about some of the issues that are arising, including issues that arise within our own group. And we were, you know, kind of limping along at that time. And um, one of my Boswell Group colleagues at the end of one of these all-day retreats uh, took me aside. Everybody was saying goodbye. We were sort of parting. And he said, uh, uh, hey, Carrie, you got a minute? And I could tell by the sound of his voice that I was in trouble. Mm. And because um, we just spent the whole day together. And, of course, I have another minute. But why? Why now? And so, um, and I said, you know, of course. And um, he said, well, you know, we've been talking about you. And then my heart started to sink. And <laughs> that's how he uh, opens. <laughs> we've been talking about yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. And um, and he said, you know, he, he said, you know, look, I uh, I've drawn the straw to give you some feedback. Oh no. And um, and and yeah, I kind of said, oh no, too. But then I thought, all right, well, I you know, I here I am in the business of advising other leaders, and uh, I don't want to get into the trap of being like the cobbler's children who have no shoes, you know, we, we should be mindful of how we uh, run our own firm as well, our own organization. And he said, look, we need more from you from as a leader. And I said, well, okay, but I'm not sure what, what that means. You got you to gotta explain that and help me out. He said, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it to you. <laughs> and he said, look, basically we need you to step up as a leader yourself because everybody likes you, you know, you're a nice guy and, you know, we're, we're doing okay. But you treat us all as though we're your friends, and, and we are. It's a very friendly group. He said, but, but you know as well as I do that there are a couple of people in the group who really aren't fitting in that well. And, um, and the only person who can really do anything about that is you. Plus, you know, you need to be more out front leading. And, um, you know, we, while we want a flat organization, we also need to be led. And, you know, I, I thought about that, and it was, it was a difficult conversation. But as I reflected on it, I realized that, that he was completely right, completely right. And, um, and he was picking up on something that was a blind spot to me in my leadership. And um, I don't want to suggest that, you know, that one conversation was like flipping the light switch and I got it right the next day. I, that would not be true. But, but I worked on it and, and had some help with, uh, with, from my colleagues. 
And, uh, and it made a big difference. And the, the Basel Group has grown. Um, I think uh, people's practices are doing quite well. And, and I, I, I think there's something to be said for my having had to, you know, experience some tough feedback mm. as a leader myself. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, suddenly you're, you're the man in the arena after being the man advising on the sidelines. It's interesting uh, when you spoke about I drew the short straw to have the tough conversation with you. Uh, Devin and I had a professor our first year. The uh, most formative class and professor. That is true. Uh, Nate Pettit. And one of the assignments that he gave throughout the semester was to have a difficult conversation with somebody and write a reflection about it. Uh, And for me, it was such a beneficial experience because it's something that you put off and you avoid, and you don't want to do, and you you know excuse it, you make excuses, and you rationalize it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's so beneficial, and it sounds like it really helped you uh, not only become a better leader, but I'm sure also inform the con- uh, the advice that you were giving to other leaders and to your clients as well. Absolutely, absolutely. It was um, the feedback that I got was a gift, and I've come to see uh, getting feedback and giving feedback as a gift, you know, in both directions. Um, uh, the human nature is such that we tend to want to avoid that, especially if it's saying something difficult. And there's an art to saying it. It, there's a, it sounds like it's a great class you're taking, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's, it's not just about hitting somebody over the head with a two-by-four necessarily. There's, a, there's an art to giving feedback and to receiving it. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, part of that art is taking into account the emotional state of the recipient and delivering it in language that is... Um, more likely to be received rather than language that is more likely to make the, the wall uh, go up. And, um, and so, but, but I think it's so crucial. And uh, the, uh, the best organizations that I work with um, have senior teams in which there is a culture of continuous feedback, not, you know, waiting until your, you know, annual performance review to give it. It's so true. You know, it's funny that class is called leadership and organizations. And so a lot of what we talk about in that class and in your work, too, it's a CEO looking down needs to make sure that looking down into an organization to um, understand what's really going on, what the pain points and the problems are. I'm curious if you're in the middle of the organization. So for many people who are graduating out of business school and who might be managers or might be principals in their group, how do you basically look at what are the symptoms or identify the symptoms of perhaps disorganization or mismanaged leadership when you're in the thick of it, when you don't have the ability to look from the top down? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, One of the things that I would say is that um, people need to pay attention when they're in the middle of an organization, pay attention to the emotional experience of going to work every day. And that may sound like an obvious thing to say, but the way it feels when you're at work, part of your team, sitting in meetings, uh, you know, reading memos, listening to... um, you know, broadcast messages from the people at the top. Um, what you it, pay attention to the feeling because it's a reflection of the quality of leadership and the and the culture, and um, and I think that young you know new graduates from business school, um, if they pay attention to to those elements to the to those dynamics, can be. Uh, uniquely positioned to actually make a change. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking about being rabble-rousers per se or troublemakers, although I'm frankly a big fan of troublemakers to a point. You're in good company. <laughs> uh, good. Um, so, you know, there's, 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 there's healthy trouble to be made, and I think if it's made constructively, I think it can be uh, to, the, to the benefit of not just your own career but to the organization as a whole. It's so interesting. I think about my dad who I never <laughs> once ever – 
in the literally ever since I can obviously recall memories, ever heard him complain about going to work. Ever have something like the Sunday scaries that we have in business school and other places where Sunday night you sort of dread that moment. Um, so it's really interesting. I've thought a lot about like the leaders that he had, but also that personal fulfillment he had from his role every day and how like rare that is to find too. It's, it's still possible to find that. It's still possible to find that. What I have found in my work with startups, um, and I was actually I should say that it's not just in the startups, but the, the, uh, there's a handful of startups that I've been involved with for the last uh, probably six or seven years. And um, the most successful ones have a profound sense of mission. Mm. Um, and the leaders lead with their values. Uh, and uh, some startup founders, I think, make what, is, what can sometimes be a catastrophic mistake of thinking, you know, well, we're, 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 it's all, all, um, all, all hands on deck now. Uh, we'll deal with this cultural stuff later, you know, when, when we're growing and when we have a little bit more cash. And it's a mistake. It's, it's a mistake. The, the culture and the values need to be there from the very beginning. That's interesting because one of the things that I think Devin and I have both been wondering about is when you come into an organization, particularly a startup, um, you know, how, do you, how do you define success, right? And, and is your work there really ever done or is it an ongoing effort to, to continue to improve uh, or can you, to, to continue to advise the company? I think about that a lot. Um, the nature of my work as an advisor is, uh, you know, I'm not like a surgeon where, you know, if somebody has an inflamed appendix, you take the appendix out, you know, the person heals, heals from the surgical wound and it's a successful operation. That's great. Um, I, I, I wish I could uh, have those kinds of clear markers of success, <laughs> but that's just not the nature of the beast. Um, being an advisor is an ongoing role and the nature of the human condition is such that um, Nothing remains static, including the, the dynamics of a senior team or the kinds of challenges that a leader makes. On the other hand, it would not be um, intellectually satisfying to me or to anybody else for me to say that it's just, you know, you know it when you see it and, and I don't really care about measurement or assessing the success of it. You know, one of the things I look for, for instance, is uh, a CEO um, being a more effective leader and having more of an impact on the culture uh, hiring better people and getting a team to work more e effectively, um, management teams that spend a disproportionate amount of time trying to you know, navigate their complicated internal dynamics are, are more dysfunctional teams as mm -hmm. opposed to teams that, and, and, the, and, and there is a certain, you know it when you see it, have, I'll just contradict myself here a little bit, but <laughs> um, where they, they get together and they work and there's a low cost of candor within the team. Uh, there's a feeling of safety, which is a much used term these days, but an appropriate one. And, um, and the CEOs, uh, if they can make themselves a little bit more vulnerable uh, and create those conditions of safety, their teams um, work better. And I, and I see that that's, how I, that's one of the ways that I, I feel I can, I can help people. I think another way is, um, is to help, um, help leaders uh, figure out if they're people who don't belong on the team. I, you know, I don't want to develop a reputation as just being involved in, you know, in, in firing people. The but axe man. Yeah. And so I, that's certainly, uh, but it is a, it's a, it's a small but important part of what I, mm -hmm. of what I do is to help, um, help leaders assess um, people on their team in the same way that I help boards assess prospective uh, candidates to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, not suggesting that I get it right all the time. But uh, another perspective uh, is is helpful. Yeah. Uh, get, and, and if there is a person who is a kind of bad apple on a team, um, no amount of work is going to change that person. And sometimes you have to either move them into a new role or move them out of the organization altogether. Yeah, addition by subtraction. 
Um, one follow-up. Do you ever get kind of personally involved? Like, do you feel like a personal connection to the founders, the board, the people running this company? Because um, I know it, it, it must be, you know, there, there must be some investment on your part uh, outside of just the business one to, to advise these people to make these, these tough decisions. Do you feel that at all in your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I'd say that I get personally involved in all of these um, uh, situations to some degree or another. And by the way, that's another important distinction between being a, being a psychoanalyst uh, with a patient where there's a certain distance that's required, mm. a certain degree of neutrality. Um, and uh, while I'm always mindful of my role as a consultant, as an advisor to CEOs and teams and boards, um, there's a personal connection for sure. And, and so these, these relationships uh, often will have a social component to it. Um, meetings will take place over meals. Uh, some clients, you know, will, uh, there's a, my wife and I will have dinner with the, the CEO and his or her spouse. Um, so, and, and then on another level, there's just, there's an emotional investment that I think I make. Once I get involved with the team, I'm, I'm in it and I feel like I have a, mm. a, a, a vested interest that is, um, uh, as much emotional as it is financial. It's, in some ways it's more emotional, uh, you know, wanting to see the team succeed. So yes, is the, is the short answer <laughs> to your question. Um, when you're talking about values and priorities and, and personal investment, you're also very involved with Physicians for Human Rights. And I'd love to hear more about your work with them and the work that they're doing around the world. Sure. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, one of the great privileges of my life has been to be involved with Physicians for Human Rights. And uh, it, it, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a, a human rights NGO that's based here in New York, but that does work around the world. It's been around for about 30 years, was founded initially by uh, some physicians at Harvard Medical School, um, and it shared in the Nobel Peace Prize back in the late 90s, long before my involvement, uh, as part of the International uh, Coalition to Ban Landmines. Um, I uh, joined the board of Physicians for Human Rights, uh, I think it was about uh, seven or eight years ago, frankly lost track of time, but... Uh, and then uh, have been the chair of the board for the past three years until just about a month ago when I handed it over to my successor, who's an extraordinary person, Alan Jones. Um, but I've been involved with, with PHR for a while, and I'm passionate about it because for me, uh, on, a, on a very personal level, it brings together my identity as a physician, my identity as a child of Holocaust survivors, where the idea of human rights violations is very personal, um, and my, uh, my work in the business world advising leaders, and I, I think the, the leadership component of the work of, of Physicians for Human Rights is really, is really important. We do a lot of uh, important work around the world. Our main areas of focus these days are, are several. One is uh, we're very involved in um, working with refugees, and we have a volunteer network of over 1,000 healthcare professionals who do um, uh, evaluations for people seeking asylum in the United States who are fleeing persecution, uh, other reasons that make it intolerable for them to remain uh, where, they, where they were born. Um, we um, uh, are focused on what's referred to as medical neutrality, which is protecting the rights of doctors to, to deliver health care in areas of armed conflict, such as in Syria, where there have been concerted attacks on doctors and health care facilities. Um, and we have a big program on sexual violence in conflict zones, uh, including our work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where our partner, Dennis McQuaggy, just won the most recent Nobel Peace Prize for, for his work at Pansy Hospital, uh, treating many, many thousands of uh, victims of uh, sexual violence. 
It's certainly you know, you know very important work going on and, and really um, important to unpack. I'm curious what you do in also your spare time. That's one thing that we love to talk about on the show, too, is, you know, how do you unwind? How do you take care of yourself? You are involved and do so much for so others. How do you basically uh, spend your free time? Well, I don't have a whole lot of it, but I, I, I certainly <laughs> try to take advantage of it. I have a great family. Uh, in addition to my wife, I have two daughters who are 26 and 22. Actually, my younger daughter is graduating from NYU Gallatin next month. So, uh, so congratulations. Very, yeah, very excited about that. She's a filmmaker. Um, so I try to spend time with our, our daughters, both of whom live in New York. Um, I, uh, I love to read, and uh, I'm usually on my rowing machine every morning at about 6 a.m. listening to an audio book. And um, so I read more fiction than nonfiction these days, but, uh, but I find that, uh, that, that, that reading fiction is enlivening. Um, so that's Couldn't a, agree more. Uh, <laughs> it's a... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I recommend my latest one, if you're unsolicited recommendation here, but um, I, I highly recommend Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea, um, which is, she won the Booker Prize for, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, back in the 90s when she wrote it. But it's a, it's a spectacularly good novel, but in many ways it's the best study of narcissism, far better than what any psychiatrist or psychoanalyst has ever written. So it's uh, very – it's prescient today. Um, given the narcissism in our highest public offices. Um, but the other thing, just to answer the question about my free time, is that I, I tend not even to think about the distinction so much sometimes between free time and, and work time. That could be a, just a total rationalization on my part. But I, my work is so much fun that I, uh, I don't feel like I need to really get away from it all that much because I, frankly, have a great time every day. That's wonderful to hear. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, how similar is the work that you do to one of Wendy Rhodes on Billions? The, the work of Wendy Rhodes on Billions? That's, I must say, or I don't know if I can say the work, the involvement, the role. Yeah. The role. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I got to say it's one of my favorite shows. I'm completely hooked on that show. And I, I'm, I'm actually just in – I've just watched the first two episodes of season four, so I'm not completely up to date. But I, I think it's an incredibly good show. And um, having said that um, – uh, my work doesn't really resemble her work very much at all. Um, she's um, – the the, uh, the character is brilliant. She's an in-house uh, psychiatrist at a hedge fund for, for the listeners here who haven't seen Billions. And I highly recommend it. Uh, so I don't – I'm not embedded in one organization full-time as she is. She also um, uh, has some very complicated boundary problems because she is um, – <laughs> Uh, you know, serving the the billionaire founder of this hedge fund while being married uh, to the uh, to the district attorney uh, or the attorney general, excuse me, who uh, who's trying to prosecute that uh, hedge fund owner. So it's uh, it's a bit of a complicated relationship to say the least. Uh, so that isn't a role that I would that I would take. On the other hand, um, you know, if you want to look for some similarities, the idea of bringing a psychological perspective to bear to some high powered people um, is something that, that I do, um, but I, I, I think my, my approach is a bit more, uh, more low-key and uh, a little less prescriptive. Absolutely. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight uh, or today. It's been uh, incredible to hear your insights uh, on your work uh, as well as your advice to aspiring leaders uh, and, and as well about the great things that you do uh, outside of work. Uh, So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you.